Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Moran. This is the second week of our Advent season. This is a joyous season. We're 12 days out from Christmas. Um, And last week, we kicked off our Advent series with the first song of Luke. It was the shouting, raucous joy of Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. When Elizabeth saw her cousin Mary and she knew that the promised Christ would come through Mary, Elizabeth shouted with joy. That was the first song. And our big aim for this Advent season is for you to know that Jesus is for your joy and that your joy can be found in Jesus. So today we're looking at song number two, Mary's song and the joy that's found there. So please pray with me while we start. Spirit of God, would you open our hearts and our eyes and cause us to hear the truth in your word? Thank you that you inspire these words and that you give us the chance and the freedom to gather around them in the name of Jesus. And we need you now to cause us to hear and respond with faith and obedience. So please come, Spirit, we ask. Amen. Okay, so let's start with the background of this song. You can think of this as like a little first century VH1 behind the music. If you, went to, if you went to confirmation classes or if you went to, if you learned any Latin in school, you know that Mary's song is called the Magnificat. But before the song starts, earlier in the chapter, Luke tells us that an angel Gabriel was sent to the little town of Nazareth to a young woman named Mary. So at this point, Mary's a young girl. She's likely a teenager. She's betrothed, which is like a more intense version of engagement, to be married to Joseph. And there's Mary when an angel appears. And we don't know specifically what this must have looked like or felt like, but we do know that every time in the Bible where an angelic being appears, it triggers this response of fear from humans. People fall down. They tremble. They're afraid. They're troubled. When you see an angel, you're afraid, right? So Gabriel says to Mary, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you're going to conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So imagine Mary just dumbstruck with this news. And she asks a great question. She says, how's that going to happen? Or more specifically, how will this be since I am a virgin. And the angel answers her and says, essentially, with God, nothing is impossible. Specifically, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and a child will be born. The angel tells Mary that the sign will be that Elizabeth, her old beyond the the state of fertility cousin, is going to give birth to a son because nothing is impossible with God. And then listen to Mary's response. 
the faith of this girl is totally incredible. She says, okay, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departs. So I know that's a familiar story. And sometimes in the Bible, we get recorded conversations in Scripture. And what we get are actually condensed versions of what of the historic events that took place. For, so there are times in the Bible where the writer is not trying to capture every single word that was said in the conversation, but is trying to get us to understand the heart of the conversation. So although there are times in Scripture where that's the case, I don't think that's actually the case here. I don't think there's reason to believe there are a lot of other details. I don't think that Luke left out the part of, for us where Gabriel and Mary shared like a chai latte and Mary got the rest of her questions answered. Gabriel didn't walk through like what the next nine months were going to look like with enough detail so that Mary had some peace of mind. And if you've ever been pregnant or realized that your wife is pregnant or your fiancé or somehow you're implicated in a pregnancy, you know, right? (laughs) You know the swirl of thoughts and emotions. Okay, instantly, it's like, a, it's like a bomb detonates in your brain. You start to think about all the ways your life is about to change. So you might start to think about the size of the place where you live or the money that you're going to need. And do you need a crib? And what are all the things that you're going to buy? Do you have a car seat? And whatever you were planning in the next nine months that all might need to be put on pause. You have to think about hospitals. You have to think about midwives. You have to think about nurses and health insurance. I remember the first ultrasound that my wife and I had together. And after it was completed, the, uh, the nurse asks, asked if we had any questions. She said, do you have any questions? So for me, I had just looked at something that looks like like an alien and allegedly was my first daughter and (laughs) i have no questions i have no words i'm still in a haze but my wife fortunately was more prepared she pulled out a pad of paper she had a list of questions there are a lot of questions if you're actually prepared there are a lot of questions that are worth asking so she had questions about pregnancy and midwives and what they would do and what was the process going to be and what were the next steps and what she could details about what she could expect. The reason I'm bringing that up is Mary didn't get a chance to ask those questions. She was a teenage girl who had received a visitation from a massive, terrifying, otherworldly being, and she got only the chance for one question. How can that be? Because not only is this birth miraculous, Like, she's being told something humanly impossible is going to happen. A baby will be born to a virgin. But really, just the idea in general is so unexpected. Israel has been waiting for a promised king. But the idea that God's plan is going to center around these two obscure women, Elizabeth, barren, and Pastor Prime, Mary, a young virgin. That's not expected. But this is what God is like. 
So Mary visits her cousin, and she gets a sign of the confirmation through that visit with Elizabeth when John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And Mary and Elizabeth get three months together. It's three months for these two cousins to rejoice in the promises of God and to encourage each other. And we can look at that and be like, wow, that must have been so great for Mary, so encouraging. But to look at it another way, that's also three months for Mary to think, wow, when I go back to my hometown, this baby's going to be showing. And everyone is going to want to know how and when I got pregnant. That's three months to wonder, is this really happening? It's probably three months to dread that long journey to be registered in Bethlehem when your pregnancy is full term. I don't think Mary had all her questions answered. But it's in the light of all these unanswered questions that we get to hear Mary's song. It's the second song of Advent. And when we heard Elizabeth's song, it was like a yell or a shout of triumph. Elizabeth heard her cousin bang on the door, and she yelled, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary's song has a different tone. Her song's not a shout. It's not a shriek. It's more serene. It's contemplative. It was peaceful in that way that only an expectant mother can be peaceful. So if Elizabeth was like a trumpet blast, Mary's like Kenny G. It's smooth jazz. It's like the song of a girl who's had, ju- had three months to spend with Elizabeth and reflect on what God's doing. And now, it's time for the journey between Elizabeth's home back to Mary's home. We believe that this is a four-day journey between those two spots. And if you've ever taken a long trip by yourself, you know you have a lot of time to think. If you've ever had to take a long solo trip by yourself, you have a lot of time to think. When I was um, freshly out of college and still underemployed, someone gave me a job, and it was basically this. It was fly from New York State to Chicago with a set of car keys, take a train, find a parking garage, pick up a white Lexus, and drive it back to New York. That was my mission. Okay, that was my mission. Someone needed that car back in New York State. It was cheaper to pay me to do that, to pay, just find a college student who had a ton of time on their hands to, to do that than it was to actually have that vehicle transported. So they paid me to do it. Uh, I'm going to leave out the part about the, the stain on their leather interior that I created, but, but, <laughs> uh, but what happens on a trip by yourself through the Midwest? You have a lot of time to think, okay? Mary had a four-day journey back home from Elizabeth's that forms the backdrop of this song. So based on the dates that the gospel writers give us, Mary left Elizabeth one month before John would be born. So this means that when Mary returns, her pregnancy will become known, and Joseph would have to make a difficult decision about what to do with the situation with his fiance, who appears to have been unfaithful? Let's just say Mary had a lot to think about. She had a lot on her mind. And as she made the trip home, this is her song. Matt read it. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This was Mary's song. So two questions that I want to answer as we look at this song. First, in light of all that background, why is Mary so joyful? And then secondly, why is Mary's joy also our joy? First, why is Mary so joyful? Well, on one hand, we could say, well, that's kind of obvious. Mary is the mother of Jesus. Of course she's going to be joyful. So we could say, sure, as bizarre and as uncertain as the situation may seem to us as we read about it, Mary just knew in her heart she was carrying the Christ. She believed it, and it filled her with incredible joy. But then we could also say, yes, but she's unique. She's the one person in the world who will have this experience. So what really does her joy have to do with mine? What I want you to see is the text shows us there's more than that. I want, you to, I want us to look at the ground of Mary's joy and see what her joy is built upon. Because there's kind of three distinct things happening in the Magnificat. First, Mary's describing the state of her heart. Namely, it's joyous. My soul magnifies the Lord. She's caught up in praise and adoration to God. Secondly, Mary's saying what God has done for her personally. She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And then third, Most of the song is Mary's describing what God is like in general. That's actually the majority of that text. It's not about Mary's emotions or what God has done for her as an individual, but actually what he has done for the people of God. So I want us to look at that first. Let's look at how Mary describes what God is like so that we can see what her joy is built upon. Because for for a girl who has lived such a short life, Mary doesn't just go to her own life story to figure out what God is like. Instead, she draws on the stories of her people to tell her what God is like. The song repeatedly uses the word has to describe the actions of God in history. In describing what God is like, Mary uses the past tense word has six times. So, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Six actions. God working in history. He has done this. So is that just interesting poetic language? Describing conceptually what God is like? No, I don't think that it is. Her song is actually referring backwards to the stories that she grew up with. For example, when God showed strength with his arm, isn't that when David cut off the head of Goliath? Or when God scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, 
Isn't that what happened to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar? Or when God brought down the mighty from their thrones, isn't that what God did to every pagan king that, that tried to stand up against the people of God? Or when God filled the hungry with good things, that was Israel plundering the Egyptians as they left slavery. When he sent the rich away empty, that was Pharaoh and his armies pursuing the covenant people of God and drowning in the Red Sea. And the song is summarized by saying, he has helped his servant Israel. Ever since Abraham, God has been in the work of choosing, pursuing, blessing, protecting a people to show the world what he is like. And Mary's just steeped in the language of Scripture. I think it's safe to say that Mary would have been an unbelievable Sunday school student. She knows the work of God in redemptive history. And she knows it so well that she knows that this crazy scenario that's implicating her as the unlikely mother of Christ is actually consistent with what God is like. Mary knows that God has always been about the work of redemption. God's action in sending the promised Messiah is not like a brand new thing. Rather, it's consistent with God's character and it's a continuation of his mercy that goes all the way back to Abraham. One commentator puts it like this. It's only because the mighty Lord has done mighty things is there good news to tell. And only because of the past tenses which speak of God's deeds is there good news to proclaim. God has always been about the work of accomplishing redemption. And Mary can have joy in the midst of her circumstances because she knows who God is in light of that. Her story is being caught up in the larger story that God is telling. But Mary's song is not only recounting what God has done in the past. This song is also looking forward to describe what God will do in Jesus. In Jesus, God will show strength with his arm. In the life of Jesus, God will scatter the proud. And in Jesus, God will bring down the mighty from their thrones. In Jesus' life, in his death and resurrection, God will exalt the humble. In Jesus, God will fill the hungry with good things. In Jesus, God will send away the rich. And the summary statement in Jesus, God will help Israel. In other words, Jesus is the hope of the people of God. And Jesus is the ultimate statement of what God is like. Jesus, God's Son, as the fulfillment of God's promises, is the ground of Mary's joy. And so you see that Mary's joy goes beyond her own life story. It's on a trajectory that goes farther than the immense uncertainty of her circumstances. Beyond her circumstances and in the midst of her questions, Mary is rejoicing that she belongs to a God who is sovereignly working out his redemptive plan. This God has been acting for thousands of years, and now this next central step 
of salvation is coming with the promised one. Mary is singing about a God who's not bound by anything. He's mighty. He's holy. He's merciful. He has looked on us. And he turns the values and assumptions of society upside down. He does it through Jesus. The ground of Mary's joy is the God who has and is and is always accomplishing redemption. In the beginning expression of this song, my soul magnifies the Lord. It flows out of that reality. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's what this is built on. In other words, Mary feels and is therefore giving expression to her experience of what God is like. Magnifies is speaking to an ongoing act of worship, of finding joy and satisfaction in who God is and what his character is like. We magnify God by rejoicing in him, in who he is, and in what he's done. And who can do that? Who can magnify the Lord? The humble one. The one who's overwhelmed by his grace. Mary's not spotless. She's a sinner. She knows that she needs a Savior, but she's rejoicing that God is her Savior and that he has looked on her. Mary is expressing her joy in God because God has acted for her as her Savior. She knows that there's no obvious reason there or no self-merited reason that God has given her this privilege. She's not entitled in that sense. There's no sense of, I deserve. Remember Mary's words to the angel after hearing this unexpected news? She says, Behold, the servant of the Lord. Let's think about what if Mary's joy had been wrapped up in her reputation, in her wedding to Joseph, in the pre-planned version of what her life had been like? Sure, she may have been a poor first century peasant girl, but we'd be foolish to think Mary had no dreams for her life. What if Mary's joy had been wrapped up in that? This is what Mary had to look forward to. The outcry when she returned to her hometown, the misunderstanding. The long trip of chapter 2 and the baby that would be born in who knows where. The complete and totally unasked for change of plans. If Mary's joy had been built on something other than the God who acts for the good of his people, corporately and individually, she could have said, could she have said, my soul magnifies the Lord? No. No. But there's joy in that wild interruption. And that can be hard for us to grasp. That is a very hard thing for us in 21st century people to grasp. I've had many, many conversations with some of you and with many others who are somewhere in the process of trying to figure out what's next. And when I use that phrase, what's next, I mean that as a general catch-all for major life decisions about things like where you're going to live or where you will work or what goals you will pursue and what priorities you will set and ultimately, really, what your life is going to look like. And as Christians, we call those decisions, we, we kind of file that under the general category of seeking God's will is how we would put that. And in one sense, those are... Huge questions. 
that we ought to make very prayerfully and very humbly with counsel. Take absolutely seriously how we as individuals or families or what have you are being called to glorify God with our lives. And I doubt there's one person in the whole room with, that has no real meaningful questions, uncertainties about the future. But in another sense, in an individualistic culture like ours, where we are constantly prone to search for identity and search for meaning outside of Christ, there is a danger. And what I'm trying to say to you is that our ultimate joy is not wrapped up in our life plan or our ability to execute it. Our ultimate joy is that we belong to the God who has and is and will accomplish redemption through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it like this. It's not in our life that God's help and presence must still be proved, but rather God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did to Israel, to his son Jesus Christ, than to seek what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the last day. What's that saying? Is Bonhoeffer discounting the importance of prayer and counsel and seeking God's will? No, absolutely not. And if you looked at his life, you would know that for sure. He's saying the ground of our joy is what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Our joy is built on the character of God and the redemptive action of God, regardless of how our plan for our life gets interrupted. And in our tendency towards myopia and obsession with self and our never-ending desire to find identity outside of Christ, that can seem very esoteric and very obtuse. It's not. So let me ask you, what is your joy built upon? What's the ground of your joy? Is it the approval of someone that you look up to? Is it whether or not you accomplish all that you set out to do that day? Is it the latest update on Gronk's knee or Edelman's foot? Is it, is it the identity that you derive from your paycheck? Or another way of asking that is, who or what could you lose and still have joy? And in saying that, I, I'm by no means diminishing the reality of human loss or pain or suffering or anxiety. I'm asking, do you know deep within your bones, that whatever happens in your life, whatever uncertainties that you are dealing with presently or have in front of you, that you belong to a God who has looked on you and that now the story of your life fits inside 
of the larger story of the triune God who has and is and will accomplish redemption. Jesus entered the world for the glory of God the Father and for the joy of sinners who inhabit a violent and chaotic world. When Jesus entered our world, it was not into an ideal family situation. They had not put together the best birth plan. They did not know what the future would hold. Jesus' life did not start or end in antiseptic cleanliness. And yet, in his life, and in his death, in his resurrection, that joy can be found. It is out there. That joy is in Christ. That joy comes from believing the gospel. When we lay aside all sense of, I deserve, or I earn, or I have, I am entitled, and we recognize the simple and undeserved truth that Mary did. He has looked on me. He has looked on us. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the work of your Son, and we rejoice in this season that we get to celebrate it. That whatever uncertainty that we deal with, I pray that the life of your Son would be the ground of our joy. That our Christmas, that our Christmas this year and our lives would be marked by deep and unshakable joy in who you are and what you have done for us. I pray that for myself and for these people today. In Christ's name, amen.